0: Men. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 38, Genesis chapter 38. And I have to say to you that the critical thing uh, that, we're, that we're wanting to communicate this morning is that we must believe in the power of God to transform lives. We cannot ever grow cynical or doubtful or cold or indifferent to the very power of God to transform lives. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for all those who believe. We believe that God can turn chaos into order. We believe that God can bring light into darkness. We believe that God can transform people's lives. He can transform our lives. That no one is a lost cause. No one is beyond the ability of God to change. Amen? We have to believe that. And we have to walk in awareness of that belief every single day of our lives. We have to preach to ourselves every day that God can change people. And why do we need to believe that every single day? Because you and I, every single day, are in need of transformation on some level. I need transformation every day I wake up. So I've got to believe that He can do that. Because if I stop believing that God can transform me, that's the moment I give into despair, doubt, that's the moment I give into darkness, that's the moment I give into bondage. We have to believe that God can transform people's lives. We have to believe it every single day because that's what glorifies God. We want to every day glorify God, do we not? We are called, whether we eat or we drink or whatever it is we do, we are called to glorify God. We are called to reflect his beauty and his glory. And the only way we can do that is if we believe every day he can transform anything and anyone. We have to believe that this transformation that God can bring can lead to an attachment to God that is far more significant than any attachment to the world was previous to knowing God. I remember my attachment to the world before I knew God and Jesus Christ, and I was very attached to the world. I was attached to its values, I was attached to its hatred, its envy, its coveting, its materialism, its lust. I was attached to all of those things and I was, I was very attached to the world. And when Jesus came and transformed my life, he made my attachment to him infinitely more significant than was my attachment to the world. And he can do that in your life today too. We have to believe in the ability of God to transform anyone every single day so that we will have energy for mission. Do you know that if you are a Christian person, a follower of Jesus Christ, saved by grace in the faith that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you are called every single day to look for an opportunity to tell somebody that news. And if you and I stop believing in the power of God to transform lives, we won't look to tell people about it. In fact, we'll see this world in political terms. Those who are Democrats or Republicans? Oh, we'll see this world in in religious terms. They're out. We're in. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. But if we believe in the power of God to transform lives, we will look at people as made in the image of God. And if they don't know God, then they have an opportunity to know God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take it to Facebook. Take it to Twitter. Tell people Jesus saves. Because God, transform lives amen why are we studying genesis you're like well because it's in the bible duh but why does god want us to look at genesis i'll tell you why he wants us to look at the book of genesis because he wants us to worship him as the god that transforms darkness into light you know what we're tempted to do with this book you know what we're tempted to do? Make it a bunch of moral tales. We're tempted to make it a bunch of vignettes of moral stories about people who did bad things and then they learned how to do good things. And now it's time for us to be good boys and girls and not be bad boys and girls. And do you know that is not what Genesis is about? You know what Genesis is about? It's about the creator God. In fact, when you go to Genesis chapter 1, verses Uh, 1 through 3, you get the big idea of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. What do we believe at Crosspoint? We believe in a literal, literal creation. We believe there really is only one God. Amen? And we believe he created all of existence. And we believe in six days of creation. We believe in all of that. But here's the thing. The reason why God reveals himself as creator is not so that we'll know that there's only one God, but also so that we'll know that God can create light out of any kind of darkness, whether physical or spiritual That he can take chaos and bring order into it. That he can take darkness and turn it into light. That he can take that that, that darkness over the surface of the waters of our spiritual lives. And bring light into it and bring order and bring sky and birds and land. He can bring spiritual stability because that is what he does. Do you know the rest of Genesis plays that out? And when we come to Genesis 38, you know what we've got? Darkness chaos. Darkness over the surface of the waters of the very family, the family of patriarchs. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has a family that is completely dysfunctional. These men that we look to in the Old Testament to be the exemplars of our faith are failing and falling on their face. Weren't you discouraged last week? They sell their brother into slavery. Jacob and his Twelve sons acting fools. And we look at them and we go, that is so discouraging. They're so chaotic. They're so broken. And I want to look at these men and I want them to be examples for me. But that's exactly what they're not. One of my daughters, we were talking about these stories. And after she heard the sermon, she was like, I'm not going to name my sons after these guys. Why? Why? Because Abraham was dysfunctional until God transformed his life. Because Isaac was dysfunctional until God transformed his life. Because Jacob was dysfunctional until God changed his life. What is Genesis about? Genesis is about the power of God to change people's lives, transform. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. And you and I have the hope of transformation. And you might know somebody. You might know a family member. You might know a friend. You might know a coworker who's walking in chaos. And when we look at these stories, we go, wait a minute. What's happening here? Why are they so dysfunctional? So that God can show his ability to transform lives. That's what Genesis 38 is about. Genesis 38 is about a man. His name is Judah. Judah is a son of Jacob. And Judah is lost, lost, lost. Judah is dysfunctional, he's chaotic, he's totally, in fact, we saw him last week, we saw him sell his brother, Joseph, into slavery for money. And you know what Genesis 38 tells us? It gets worse before it gets better. But God reveals chapter 38 so that he shows us how he slowly begins to bring about transformation into Judah's life so that you and I will look to God for our own transformation, so that you and I will look to God for the transformation of our world and people and everything around us so that we will worship God as the God of transformation. And so, with that encouraging news and that theme... We come to chapter 38, and again, before I read i got to warn you, it's going to get worse before it gets better, but hang in there. Don't be discouraged. This is about the slow process of transformation in Judah's life. And let me start reading chapter 38 and verse 1 as we think about these issues of transformation. And let me talk under the heading of Judah's departure. Judah's departure. Look at verse 1, it says, It happened at that time... That Judah went down, you could underline that, he went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now there's two observations here. First of all, he's going down, note that, that's not only a geographical indication, that's a spiritual indication. He's going down, he's leaving his brothers, he's leaving the family of patriarchs, he's leaving the family of God's covenant. He's leaving everything that he's supposed to belong to. He meets a new BFF who's here, the Adulamite, who we are not going to like. We are, this guy is bad news for Judah. I used to always say, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. First, first passage I ever memorized in my Christian life was 1 Corinthians 15.33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Judah is leaving the community of God, and he's joining the community of the world. He's got a friend that has no concern for God, no concern for covenant. And you know what? Here the Adulamite saying, oh, Judah, he's saying, hey, man, I see you're a man of means. You just made an extra little bit of money somewhere. You're carrying a pretty big money bag. Hey, I can show you a good time. I can show you where the ladies are. I can Listen, we'll go down into the part of Canaan, of, of the land of Canaan, where what happens there stays there. That's here, the Adullamite. He's leaving his family. He's going into this world, and he meets a Canaanite woman, and he marries her. What's Genesis tell us? Genesis tells us through Abraham and Isaac, you don't marry a Canaanite woman because a Canaanite marrying, intermarrying with the Canaanite people means that you add to your own spirituality the spirituality of the Canaanites. You add to your own God the gods of the Canaanites. That's why Abraham worked so hard to get Isaac a non-Canaanite wife. That's why Isaac worked so hard to get Jacob a non-Canaanite wife, but yet Judah, he's leaving that whole principle. And he's going down, and he marries this Canaanite woman, and he has three sons by her. We pick it up in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. I meant to read that in the King James this week. I was wondering if it said, he smote-er. But what's interesting, here's the interesting thing about that death. This is the first time in Genesis since Sodom and Gomorrah that God has punitively judged somebody to death. And also, this is the first time an individual in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, first time that God strikes down an individual to death, just one individual. Usually, it's a town or a city or, or something like that. But this is the first time. That God does that. And we ask ourselves, why did God do that? And I'll tell you why God did that. God is trying to remind Judah, who is so cold and callous at this point. He's so insensitive and indifferent to God. But God's trying to tell him, I really do hate sin. I love you. But I hate sin. But note that Judah has no remorse, no grief. In fact, compared to Jacob, when Jacob thinks that Joseph's dead, Jacob's like grieving and he's like wearing black and he's all like, he's all like, he's all really grieving. But here Judah doesn't even care. In fact, Judah just jumps to the next son to give to Tamar so that she can have offspring. Watch what it says here in verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this was a common law in the ancient world. It's called the Leverett Law, where a brother would go in to his deceased brother's wife if she was a young enough widow so that she could have babies. And we think, oh, that's really awkward and it's kind of gross, you know. But it was a real practical thing in the ancient world because for a young widow, if her husband dies, her only welfare system, her system of protection and provision came through children. If she had children, her children would take care of her as she grew old, and they would provide for her, and they make sure she had food and things like that, so it's very important in the ancient world that this happened. But for, in the Bible, this law, of this Leveret law, is codified in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 25, which I really encourage you to read, because it's really great stuff. There's some funny stuff in there, but I, I don't have time to go into it. Even though it's so funny, it would be so much fun, but here's the thing, God... God is like, God wants women to produce offspring because his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is threefold. You're going to have land, you're going to have offspring, and you're going to be a blessing to the world. And how is it that God's people are a blessing to the world? In the Old Testament, they have covenant children. And so having covenant children not only protected a woman, but it gave woman the opportunity to be on mission and to spread the good news that God had a redemptive plan for fallen humanity. And ultimately, that offspring would produce who? Jesus Christ, the ultimate offspring, the ultimate descendant. You might remember God said to Eve, you are going to destroy the serpent through your offspring. Offspring is everything with the covenant. And so to deny the opportunity to have an offspring is not only to deny a woman her protection, it's to deny God's promise. It's to deny God's covenant. It's to deny God's mission and salvation for the world. That's what makes verse 9 so absolutely horrible. Here's what Onan does. So Judah says to Onan, okay, you're my second son. I need you to go and I need you to help Tamar have babies. Onan is selfish. Look at verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So he's not concerned about God's plan. He's only concerned about himself. So whenever he went in, note how regular he goes in to poor Tamar. That's important. I know that's graphic. That's, he continues to go in. And he went in to his brother's wife. And he would waste the semen on the ground. So as not to give offspring to his brother. Note the three times it says offspring. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. So there's the second individual struck down by God because Onan was unwilling to impregnate her. But actually used this woman only for his own sexual desire used her for his own purpose. And in the context of Genesis, what that was a denial of is it was a denial of God's covenant. It was a denial of God's promise for blessing. It was a denial of everything. And Judah is unconcerned too about the covenant of God at this point because we see what Judah does next. He's lost two sons. Look at verse 10 or verse 11. It says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house Till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went in and remained in in her father's house. So Judah makes a false, deceitful promise. He says, Don't worry, I'll let my youngest son come to you when he's of age. But he has no intention of sending his son into Tamar so that offspring could be produced, because now Judah is unconcerned with the covenant, with promise, with mission, with the blessing to the nations, with children being born, and all of those things he no longer cares about. All of these promises. You say, how do you add this up? How do we apply this to our life? You see what's happening. He's departing from the person of God. He's departing from his relationship to God. That's what Judah's doing. That's the chaos. That's the darkness over the surface of the deep. He's departing from God's people. He left his brothers. He's got Hera the Adulamite. And he's departing from God's purpose, which is to bless the world with salvation. Judah and his son Onan is consuming, but not on mission. And I want you to know this. Here's, you say, what does transformation mean practically? I mean, practically. I mean, I get it. Transformation is from darkness to light. from chaos to order. But what does it look like when God begins to transform our life? What is God calling us to? God is calling us to a relationship with him. God is calling us to a relationship with his people. And God is calling us to a relationship with his mission and his purpose in this world. That is what God is doing. And that's what transformation looks like. And what is it that Satan and demons and darkness and evil is trying to keep us from? Satan is trying to keep us from a relationship with God. Satan is trying to keep us from the people of God. And Satan is trying to keep us away from the purpose and the mission of God. You see, God is calling us and elevating us to a place of relationship, of people and community, and of purpose for him. And whenever we use God for our own ends, whenever we look to the church only to meet our own needs, whenever we we look to our own purposes or it's about my plan and not God's plan and I hope God blesses my plan, then you know what? We are committing the sin of Onan. We're wasting our life. We are wasting our life. But God doesn't want us to do that. God is the God of transformation. Transformation. Everybody pull out your bulletins. Pull out your bulletins. You got your bulletins? And look on the very back. This is what Crosspoint is all about. You know what Crosspoint is about? Blessing the world. Crosspoint's about mission. And if you look at the back of your bulletin, you see the vision. The vision is to be disciples that make disciples. We want to multiply. We want to be the kind of disciples that's the light of the world, salt of the earth. And there's three priorities that we walk through at Crosspoint. You see them there? The first one is that we want to worship God with a gospel-centered worship. We're not looking to be religious. We're not looking to be high church, high culture church with all kinds of liturgy. We're not trying to do that. We're not trying to be low pop cultural church. We're trying to be a simple church rooted in scripture, rooted in the gospel, rooted in opening up the word and applying the gospel to our lives. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. We come together to worship God and to receive from scripture and from the gospel this God glorifying, God beautifying God so that our hearts are ignited with passion for the beauty of God. Amen? The second thing, the second priority is community. And the primary way we do that is not through bowling, as fun as that was yesterday. The primary way we do that is through life groups. Amen? We have life groups, and these life groups are our opportunity to be a spiritual community in living rooms, and we eat together, and we eat dessert or whatever, and we pray, and we talk about Scripture, and we talk about the sermon. You know what? Our small groups are sermon-based, and I'll tell you why they're sermon-based. Because we're not going to do any of this fluffy little study stuff that's out there. We're not cranking out all this cheap literature that they sell by the gazillions out there that they market as so-called Christianity. You know what we're doing? We're talking about the Bible. We're talking about we're talking about prayer are our life groups perfect no except for mine mine's pretty perfect but they're not perfect and and there, it is awkward at times and and, there, and there, there is a getting used to meeting and making friends on the purpose of spiritual but you know what? Judah would have been a lot better with his dysfunctional brothers than he would have been with than he was with here the Adulamite. He would have been a lot better with his imperfect church back where he was supposed to be with his brothers than he was with the, with the Canaanites and doing what he's doing here. He's getting himself in a lot of trouble cuz he left his church and he wasn't connected. He was Listen, we are getting together in life groups for this very reason right here so that we can experience that transformation. Here's the third thing. Worship, community, and ministry. And every single one of you have been given the Holy Spirit to make a difference in the church and outside of the church. And the church wants to equip you. We want to equip you and encourage you and inspire you to have dreams and to use your time and your treasure and your talents so that the gospel goes forward. Because we are a covenant family. We are a new covenant family. And Jesus said to go and make disciples. We come to church so that we can go from church. We come to church so we can be equipped and encouraged to go and be the light. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. And a city on a hill can—it's not easily hidden, is it? Like, what's your advertising plan for Crosspoint? What's your, what's your commercial plan for C- Crosspoint? You are the advertisement for Jesus. You are the ones that make a difference. You're the ones that represent Jesus. And for some people, you might be the closest thing of Jesus that gets to them. Jesus died and purchased the church with his blood so that his church can go out and proclaim the message of the blood. So take it to the streets. Take it to your world. Take it to people. Tell people, I understand you're broken. I used to be broken too. I understand you're in darkness. I understand you're confused. I understand your chaos. I understand the lack of creation in your life. But listen to me, there's good news. Any man who's in Christ Jesus is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Jesus said you could be born again. You could become children of God by faith alone. You could be adopted into God's very family. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my testimony. Let me tell you what it is that's what we're about. We don't want to depart from these things. We want to return to them. That's what transformation looks like, a relationship with God, a relationship with his people, and a relationship with his mission. That's what Judah's missing. That's what God's got to change in him. And so God's got to start this process of change in Judah's life. And man, is he about to step in it? Wow. We come back to Verse 12, we remember he made that lie to Tamar. Hey, you go home to your daddy. I'll be back for you. Of course, he had no intention of sending another son to her because they just die when he he does. He doesn't understand, can't interpret these events in his life. So we pick it up in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. we got to get rid of this guy. We've got to get rid of Hira. And what we have here is we've got a sheep shearing time. Now, here's what happens at sheep shearing time. Party. Festivals. Drinking. Women. It's like the Mardi Gras of this world. That's what sheep shearing time is. In fact... In the book of Hosea, later on in the Old Testament, Hosea talked about sheep shearing time as being a dangerous time for God's people because of all the drinking and all the sex and all the immorality that's going on. And what's Judah doing? He's sheep shearing partying. You know what I'm saying? That's what he's doing. Here and, and, and Judah, that's what they're doing. And so he's going out, and that's what he's doing. Verse 13, And when Tamar was told... Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments. Note that she's still in mourning. Judah, when his wife died, he's just done with mourning. She's still mourning from years and years ago the death of Onan. She's still willing to be a widow in mourning because she's waiting for the young son to come and get her and save her. This is many years later. So she covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Inayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now I've got to stop. Before you can read the rest of the story, you've got to let me explain to you Tamar and her story. Because the best day of Tamar's life, listen, the best day of her life, was when Judah showed up at the threshold of her daddy's home and said to her, Daddy, I want your daughter to marry my son. That was the best moment of her life because she got taken out of her daddy's home and she got to belong to a family filled with promise and covenant and God. And if you read anything about the Canaanite people from Moses later on in the book of Deuteronomy, you learn that the Canaanites are horrible people, horrible people. They sacrifice children on altars. They do horrible things. And for her to be taken from her father's home and to be married into Judah's household was the best thing. Because it, be, it would be comparable to leaving Isis. It would be comparable for a woman being taken from Isis and belonging to a Jewish family in contrast to Isis. That is what happened to Tamar when Judah came and married her to Ur and then to Onan. And it broke her heart. Guarantee you it broke her heart when Judah looked at her and said, go back to your daddy and I'll come back and get you. And in her heart was this hope. They're going to come and get me again. They're going to take me from this culture of death. This family of death. And I'm going to be saved, and I'm going to have purpose, and I'm going to be a part of the offspring of a covenant family. I'm going to be a part of God's family, and that's what I want in my life. Because, listen, she could have forgotten about Judah, and she could have gone and married a Canaanite guy, or gone and done whatever she wanted. But she wanted to belong to this family. And you know who she reminds me of? She reminds me of Rahab. Remember Rahab and Joshua? Joshua. And she was more than willing to lie so that the Israelites would take over that city. Because she was sick of being a harlot and being passed around from men to man in that culture. And Rahab was willing to lie so that the spies could get into Jericho. You know who she reminds me of? She reminds me of Ruth. Ruth, who was a Moabite woman the Moabites were descendants of the incestuous relationship of Lot with his daughters. And the Moabites were horrible people. And Ruth said to Naomi, I'm going to go and I want your God to be my God. I want your people to be my people. I want to belong to that. And when she goes into Israel and she meets Boaz, she even tricks Boaz a little bit, if you know that story a little bit, so that Boaz would marry her and redeem her from that family and she could belong to God's people. And that is exactly what's happening with Tamar. Are her actions perfect? No, not at all. Are we justifying what she's about to do? Not completely. But you know what? She had rights that Judah promised her, and her right was to have children so that she belonged to this family, she'd be protected, and she'd be a part of the promises of God. This is about Tamar's redemption. So watch. Watch. Verse 16. Verse 15. Pardon me. When Judah saw her, that is Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute. Of course, she's not a prostitute, but he thought so. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give to you? And she replied, your signet. That is your ring, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose, went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, I used to read this story. I used to wonder about it. I used to go, man, this is just strange because how, how did he not know that this was Tamar? Well, she's covered up. She kept her head covered and all of that. But when you think about sheep shearing, this is a man who's probably had way too much to drink. He barely can remember what he's doing. And he gives up. In fact, he gives her his, because he doesn't have the young goat to pay her. So he gives her a pledge of the young goat, which is his ring, his cord, and his staff, which is the, the, the symbols of social identity in that time. One commentator said that it would be comparable to giving your credit card and your driver's license to somebody and just letting them keep it. He's basically giving over his identity for a few moments of pleasure. For the trivial act of sexual activity. He gives up his very identity. That's the world as I remember it, isn't it you? You just give up your whole identity, meaning and purpose, live randomly. And that's what he's doing. And ultimately, she knew what she was doing. She knew that by having that ring and that cord and that staff, she's got him exactly where she wants him God sovereignly allows this moment to happen in Judah's life for one of the most humbling things that he'll ever experience and look at verse 20 when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand he did not find her He asked about where's the cult prostitute and there's no cult prostitute here And Judah replied, I love this, let her keep the things as her own, and we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and we did not find her. So he's like, I'll just cancel the credit card, I'll get a new one, we're out of here. Because he doesn't want to be laughed at, he doesn't want to be caught, he doesn't want to be shamed. He thinks that this is going to forever be covered up, and that that this activity of being with a prostitute won't ever be found out. But of course, time and truth go hand in hand, isn't that right? Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Well, isn't that the pot calling the kettle black? Now, you got to love this. Don't you love it when the player gets played? The deceiver's been deceived. The sin has come out. God has set the trap so that conviction will settle into Judah's life. And he will finally no longer be calloused, no longer indifferent, but he'll be broken. And he'll come to a place of confession. That's what happens. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these I belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. That moment, that, that, that's the moment of, his, of the beginning of his transformation is verse 26, when he says, she's more righteous than I am. For the first time in his life, he admits that he's been sinful, that he's broken. For the first time in his life, he admits that he is unrighteous. When he says that she's more righteous than I, he's not justifying harlotry or prostitution he's not justifying what she did the bible's not saying that 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 mode and that method that she chose is the correct mode obviously not but what he is saying is that she had rights that he did not give to her namely that he didn't offer her opportunity to belong to the covenant family which was rightly hers Judah, from this moment on, he's not perfect, but he grows. And you know what? Here's the the cool thing about chapter 28. It's 22 years of his life. So when you take the beginning of this chapter and you take the end, you take a, a period, a span of time that goes all the way up to right before him and his brothers go and meet Joseph and he becomes the spiritual leader of his brothers. He's the one that's humble. He's the one that pleads and wants to be a sacrifice for Benjamin. He's the one that pleads for his father. And he's even the one that's willing to die for his family before Joseph. He's the one that reconciles himself to Joseph. And if we didn't have chapter 38, we wouldn't have known how he became one man who sold Joseph to another man who was willing to be reconciled to Joseph. You see, God is transforming him. Practically, where does transformation begin? It begins with confession. Transformation is not about what we do for God. Transformation is our admitting that we need God to do something in us. That's what it is. And if you're like, I need to be transformed, or somebody in my life needs to be transformed, you have to know this. It's not about a me change. It's about an exchange. It's about us coming to a place of admitting that we need God to work in our life. And what is it that God uses to transform our lives? He uses two things. Number one, he uses grace. Everybody say grace. me finish out the chapter and you can see grace in these final chapters verse 27 when the time of her labor came there were twins in her womb and when she was in labor one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying this one came out first but as he drew back his hand behold his brother came out and she said what a breach you have made for yourself well look at you little guy he just popped right on out in front of your brother. That sibling rivalry, it begins at birth. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And this is the point. God's repeat, God is so repetitive. God is almost disturbingly repetitive because this is Jacob and Esau. Esau was the red older twin that came out remember that the older son here the older son has the red cord around his his wrist he comes out first only a hand then he pulls it back and then the younger brother comes out right in front of him and what God is saying is that I always choose the younger over the older and why because God says your transformation isn't going to come from works it's not going to come through your strength it's not going to come because you're older or stronger it's going to come because you recognize you are small and needy and weak it's by grace don't try to change yourself come to God and say change something in me it's all by grace Tamar is put into the line of Jesus by grace and if Tamar can belong to the family of Jesus you and I can belong to the family of Jesus isn't that right and if Judah can be used as the lion who created the tribe or as the tribe who created the lion Jesus Christ, then, then God can use us to bring Jesus into this world. In fact, don't turn there, but I got a I I slide. Watch this. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and following, we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and that dream of Tamar to belong to God's family comes true in the most ultimate way. When it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Notice how Judah is now the leader in the family. Not Reuben, not Levi, not Simeon, all older brothers. Judah his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. You try to do it that fast sometime, but you see, Tamar was saved. Put into the covenant family of God so that you and I, whenever we look and we run into a Tamar, we can say to her, you have hope. And Judah is the one. Not only did Jesus come from Israel and the Jewish people, but from the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah. So that you and I can be reminded by God, we can be used to bring Jesus into this world. You can be, if Judah can be used, you can be used. That's grace. That's transformation. That's from chaos to order. That's from darkness to light is to be used. We say, how can God, though? No, no, no we got to get this right. Now, Wait, hang on now, because I was told by my preacher growing up that God is holy. God is righteous. God, is, God can't allow. God can't just wink at sinners and just say, well, by grace, I guess I'll just let you come in. I guess I'll just let you be used. I'll let the Tamars and the Judas of the world be saved. No, it comes at a cost, doesn't it? Let me read to you one more passage, and then we'll be ready for communion. Revelation. What's the price of grace? The price is the Lamb of God. Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been Slain. What are the two things we need? We need grace from God that flows through the death of Jesus Christ who earned and purchased the ability for God to love us unconditionally. It comes at great cost. That's why you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. That's why you have to believe in Jesus to belong to his family. He purchased grace on the cross by being the Lamb of God. That is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, transformation, I'll close with this, transformation is not a program. Transformation comes through a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. It's not a religious program, not a list of do's and don'ts, not a you got to walk through this formula or this liturgy, listen to me, it is by faith. In the person of Jesus Christ. And it is broken relationships that is the cause of all the flaws and brokenness that we hate about ourselves. And is a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ that heals all those flaws. That transforms our life. And I am calling you not to religiosity. I'm not calling you to religion. I'm not calling you to liturgy. I am calling you to the person of Jesus who died, rose again, and he is alive and present with all who believe in him. And if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, listen, come to him, Tamar. Come to him, Judah. Come to him, all of you. Even here, even if you're here of the Adullamite, even here of the Adullamite could be saved if God so chose because Jesus purchased our salvation on the cross. And relationship is the key to transformation. Let us pray.